0: Ah, this one, right. uh, I changed my title a little bit to adapt it adapted to the changed panel, I reviewed revised panel title. So I really want to have a little bit of a think in what ways something like do-it-yourself aid could be innovative. Not sure it is, but it's, think it's worth thinking through. So what I should probably say, um, I'm an anthropologist. So I have no business with development as such, but I study, at the moment, aid and development as a social field. So I've done research with corporate expatriates in the past, and I'm interested in people who move for work. So these kind of um, people that I'm going to talk about today are part of what could be called the DIY aid revolution, revolution with a question mark. Um, See if I can just get this on. How can I... Maybe we should just click that work? Yeah. Okay. So you might have heard of this. Um, the journalist Nicholas Christ- Christoph had an article in 2010, the New York Times declaring a do-it-yourself-aid revolution. And you see the headline in about a moment. And he basically was describing small or small-scale activities, people who went to developing countries of their own initiative or middle-income countries, of their own initiative in order to set up their own projects. There could be NGOs, but their organizational status isn't actually critical to the whole idea. The point is that they're not aid professionals in the sense that they haven't had MAs in development, they have not n- usually gone to work for an NGO or another multilateral, or other big organization, they've gone of their own accord. So this, if you want to follow that up, this has had lots of discussion at the time, whether they're all amateurs, whether they should be left to it, whether they're dangerous, and so on. So that's kind of the broader context for this. Um, This diy aid revolution has had other names. There's a big uh, research initiative um, in, in Netherlands called, they've called it the Private Development Initiative. So they were looking at hundreds of Dutch citizens who made transnational links with projects in Africa, for example. But it was the same idea. The journalist Linda Polman has called this somewhat rhetorically, Mongols, my own NGOs. And she mentioned that in her book, The um, Crisis Caravan, I think, 2008. Tia Hillhorst calls them non-governmental individuals, NGIs, which I kind of find helpful, because it uh, points out their non-incorporated nature. It should really be called probably part of this fourth pillar of aid, which has never gained much traction this term, or citizen aid, but if we want to give it a place, that's probably where it could be. So I did my research in Cambodia, partly because Cambodia used to be full of foreign aid workers. It's also quite Lawless until very recently, in the sense that the setting up of uh, NGOs and generally of foreigners crossing the border and staying on tourist or business visas is both easy and very unregulated, so a thousand flowers could bloom or wither. <laughs> so uh, just to remind you, all you know where Cambodia is, but it's a little country wedged between Thailand, Laos, and Vietnam, and if there is a going to Southeast Asia, it kind of tends to go to Laos and Cambodia because they're comparatively less well-off than the, uh, Thailand and Vietnam. Now, what's DIY-8 about? It's basically based on and enabling small-scale personal encounters between individuals and or communities. So there's an individual or a couple or friends, not more than two people normally, going somewhere else in order to make that difference that we heard of in the last video, obeyed in a much less reflected manner than, than your slides just suggested. There wasn't much thinking about transformation, it was usually just an impetus, a hunch, a desire. Unexpressed, unregulated to sort of go somewhere and do something. So in that sense, they would never call. They wouldn't call themselves volunteers. They're much more comparable to startup individuals who start projects or little businesses. The other key characteristic is that there's a small group of recognizable beneficiaries. So we're talking about in a person-to-person connection. They all know the people that they're working for. Yeah, it could be five, ten. You know, of course, some of these small initiatives grow big and then they grow into hundreds and they don't know them anymore by person. But my research um, has focused on while they're still small or before they fold. So if they have any ideology, it's often unexpressed, but it focuses on changing the life of at least one person. Yeah, Maybe changing the country in the long term, but one child at a time. So the question is, um, is there any other innovative spaces created through that kind of operating? And I have three examples, I should actually say I've done research with this for a few, well, two and a half years, and with the help of a Young grant. And so I've been to Cambodia for a few, you know, few weeks at a time over the last two years. And some of these people I've actually known for quite a while. So I have a look at three example cases and see in what ways they're doing things differently, what are the advantages and the pitfalls. So the first of all is an organization called Kiwis for Cambodia. This is basically Denise and John Burton from New Zealand, who um, have, in a totally random, or you could say chance, by Denise, they have both had jobs in New Zealand, but their kids were grown up. Denise looked on the internet because she was looking for do something. She literally came across YouTube, a video made by a local community head in, of a Cambodian village who had put out a call <laughs> through YouTube saying, please, we want to do a bit of community in our village. Can someone come and help us? So uh, Denise saw that video, they tried to, fo- started to follow up, and they ended up with them going on a plane to Cambodia. So now they're working with a small village near in Siem Reap in the north of the country and they're trying you know, all kinds of things, health, education, supplemental schooling, and so on. What well, is characteristic here is a very unmediated kind of matching up. So a lot of these encounters are by chance. Somebody comes around with a desire and meets someone, a Cambodian person, who needs them and who needs their skills, for example. In the, sorry, in the case of Keepers um, for Cambodia, it's also typical that it's initiated by local demand. So this is not about participation with a big P. It is basically about someone somewhere in Cambodia who wants to do something in many cases and looks for some other person, often a foreigner with resources that can help them make that happen. So it is collaborative, but they wouldn't I have never heard them use the word participatory. Second example is Khmer for Khmer, an organization I've known for quite a long time. Um, this consists of a German person and, and a Cambodian person called Pari and um, Marcus. And they were just neighbors. They knew each other for a long time before Pari got talking to Marcus and said she was running an English school. She was kept giving out scholarships for poor students from the provinces. Couldn't they make this a bit more systematic? So they did. And about eight years later, they've connected, a started an organization which is based on long-term relations with, of partners in place. And they offer training, course of vocational training, motorbike mechanics, and sewing. But the beneficiaries come from Paris' village, really. There are people that she knows and that her family knows, random, there was no needs assessment. And typically, also, they're drawing a different sets of skills. Marcos has other skills than Pari and they are often, you know, they combine and they use them at different times. What they can do for innovation is they can try things out. So they've done lots of various things that haven't worked. Yeah, certain times of vocational training, certain times of models in terms of time scale, nobody came, people dropped out, trainers were useless. But they had the space to do that and nobody hammered them if it went wrong, they just kind of retracted try it again and because it was so small scale the losses were limited. Another typical space of innovation perhaps is making use of mo- mobile high-skilled labour. Yeah, there are many organisations, as you know, such like Accountants Without Borders, roaming accountants who look around for little outfits like this but can go in for a week or two and train people in how to keep their books. And they, those are volunteers, but they may are able to make use of these volunteers on an ad hoc basis, or sometimes people come back every year to add to curriculum development, people who come again of their own accord, not mediated by any grant scheme. How many minutes have we got? Five? Five. Good. Okay, so last example is the Ponier Relief Foundation, um, which is also typically a Cambodian foreign collaboration. This is Ponier Relief, whose family suffered quite substantially from the Khmer Rouge regime and who became a tour guide in the aftermath of the genocide which gave her the chance to interact with lots of foreigners and she, her passion was education and somebody said to me that's her way of taking revenge on her family's killers by, you know, the Khmer Rouge had a traditional very anti-educational stance for prioritizing education for poor village killers. So she met Laurie, an American, on one of her tourist rounds and together they've set up this foundation. There are spaces for new models of what you could do, do call donor engagement, again roaming individuals who get engaged by providing breakfast for people, for kids in these schools, they come once a year, twice a year, donate money and go and hand out these breakfasts. That's a symbolic act. The thing is that you create a connection with some individual donors who then become long-term supporters. When I talked to Laurie and Poneri about it, they said where they're key, they were able to try out all kinds of things because they stayed under the radar. So they worked in a way to supplement government schooling, but in a way that left <coughs> the government to itself. Yeah, so they operate in contrast, not in opposition, but sort of a very low key kind of supplementary function that allowed them to do what they wanted. So, mm, could it be a source of innovation? Well, I think what, from what I've seen, there's a lack of incorporation and a lack of bureaucracy. So, I have very, very few people moan about donor requirements, report writing, uh, log frames, hierarchies, managers and transactional communication that is not there. Um, they build different relations with donors, which are labour-intensive but of a different nature. What is most typical is that they set their own agenda. So they, again, there's no needs assessment. They haven't gone in and scanned Cambodia for what's most urgent. That means in many ways they don't address problems which you know big organisations think are most urgent. They address stuff that appeals to them, and that can be random. But it also means there's space for experiments. So it is not participatory, but it's collaborative by necessity because in many of these partnerships, local knowledge and transnational collections are key to making this work. Um, sustainability. Anybody I talk say, oh, but you know, is it sustainable? Well, not always. You know, I've seen a bundle of projects, people lost, you know, lacked income, lost faith, got ill, had something else to do, didn't work, abandoned the stuff and anybody who was involved in it. There's often a lack of expertise. Yeah. Everybody a lot of people tell me, oh, it was such a steep learning curve. And you think, well yes, you know, so there's a danger of reinventing the wheel, but actually People enjoy these deep learning curves. That's why they're doing it. They know that somewhere out there there's expertise, but they join them for them as the agency and learning to do how to do it for themselves. It would be naive to think there are no power struggles. So, for example, when I last talked to John and Denise from Kiwis for Cambodia. It was cry, They were very unhappy with how the money had been managed by the local village head and they didn't really know who their allies were in the village and how to implement something that they w- thought was sensible, but some other people in the village didn't. And of course, the village doesn't speak with one voice. So these are definitely evident. To finish off, Duncan Green in one of his recent, his recent papers had su- has suggested that maybe large NGOs should also get better in spotting, supporting and adopting innovation from its most likely source, new or smaller <coughs> NGOs? So that's an open question. I'll leave you with it. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.